Welcome back to the Plowcast. I'm Susanna Black Roberts, senior editor at Plow. I'm speaking today with Adam Nicholson. Adam is an author and journalist who's written for the Sunday Times, the Sunday Telegraph, many other places, and he is the author of numerous books on landscape, literature, history, and the sea. Most recently, How to Be: Life Lessons from the Early Greeks. He is married to the writer and gardener Sarah Raven and lives at Perch Hill Farm in Sussex. Well, Adam, thank you so much for coming on. Well, I wanted to say thank you for having me on in Plow. It's very enjoyable writing things for you. It's, it's a very nice magazine. We like it. <laughs> I think um, it's absolutely brilliant to have had an uh, issue about repair. Yeah. I haven't seen I haven't seen a, a magazine do that uh, before, and uh, it's such a great subject of the moment, you know. There are sort of two official things that the podcast ought to be about, I suppose, which is one of which is your piece in the magazine. And then the other of which is um, it could be a bit of a book talk from the new book, um, but mainly the piece in the magazine. But I also have all kinds of other related questions. <laughs> well, the original, as I told you, the original um, way that I, I got to know your work was because I was doing this ridiculous 13,000 word piece on um, sort of homer and the gospel and and nietzsche and so on and um i read your homer book for it and just absolutely loved it and then i started reading i i forget i do you mention sailing in that i do every book unfortunately after pitching you as an as a contributor and then there was like this long silence and pete was like you know he's key like you actually should know that he has a piece coming up in the next issue anyway so the piece you've had kind of long and somewhat frustrating experience attempting to repair farms and repair bits of landscape um and the piece that you've written for our repair issue is about uh, your Perch Hill uh, farm. Can you describe what the history of that is and also your earlier attempts to do a similar thing? Well, um, when was it? In something like, I think it was uh, 1994. So what is that, 30 years ago, uh, my wife and I decided that we'd had enough of of, uh, life in London and really uh, kind of ran for the hills. And the nearest bit of hills that we could run to uh, was in Sussex, about maybe, I think it's about then, two hours south of London. And Sarah, my wife, found this this wonderful, incredibly decrepit place, a a kind of failed dairy farm, oceans of um, concrete and corrugated asbestos and a sort of absolute horror story of half-built, half-collapsed barns mm-hmm. and 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 all of that. And she uh, rang me. I was at work in London. She rang me and she said, uh, you've, got to, you've got to come and see this place. It's absolutely incredible. <laughs> so I, ca- I came down and thought, yeah, OK, interesting, absolutely incredible. And she said, no, 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 wait, wait, come, come out here. Uh, come, come and look at the fields. Mm. And so we walked out into the fields and this completely uh, entrancing, enveloping um, kind of handmade network of what I now realise is essentially a medieval landscape. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
you know, surrounded the, this this rubbish house, which was mm -hmm. actually the rooms were too low for me to stand up in. Oh no! <laughs> yeah. So, so, but the place, the place was just completely entrancing, and um, for that kind of sense of containment and enclosure. Uh, but it had been very badly messed about with by a couple of generations of, of farmers who who had been driven by um, you know modern economics of farming, which are essentially based on very large scale, very empty landscapes, mm. to denude it, to take out hedges, take out woods, to to uh, it quote improve the the grassland. Uh, with um, you know modern Italian ryegrasses and 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 high nitrogen systems and all the rest of it, and so this wonderful place in its bones uh, had experienced a kind of awful uh, degradation. In mm -hmm. there was there's a marvelous um, landscape historian, English landscape historian Oliver Rackham, mm -hmm. who who wrote about all these things long, long before anyone else in the, in the 70s and 80s, last century. And, and he, his term for the kind of mid to end late 20th century was the years of the locust, mm -hmm. that somehow a terrible plague had swept across the land and denuded and diminished and, and hurt it. Mm -hmm. And so it's very, very apparent in, in these abused places that repair and making good is what it's kind of crying out for. And uh, it's shamefully, it's now 30 years on and, and I've hardly nibbled at the edges of doing mm. this. I mean, you know, we have put in a good, I think probably a mile of, of new hedges on the old lines. We've We've restored much of the grazing. It's much f more flowery than it ever was. No poisons or, or, or stimulants have been applied mm -hmm. to the place. And so gradually, gradually, it is embarking on a kind of career of renewal. Mm -hmm. uh, and and, the, and the, renew the form of renewal is extremely conservative with a small c mm -hmm. it's it's absolutely thinking that this place has embedded in it a wonderful ancient uh, medieval wisdom really mm -hmm. that understood that human affairs and human thriving could be uh, interleaved you could say with the natural mm -hmm. that the two the two could be so almost mutually uh, stimulating and so and and that the way of doing that is to you know they're very very modern things that the you know, modern grazing systems you move uh, cattle or sheep on every few days to a new enclosure well the old enclosures were all only two or three acres you know tiny mm -hmm. things and so designed for the moving on mm -hmm. the old hedges were these very very thick old things that not only provided uh, timber for warmth in the house, as, as they still do for us now, uh, but were wonderful corridors for wildlife between, between the woods and so on. And so there is a kind of, there's, there's an absolute model there, really, mm -hmm. of how, you know, you don't need to rewild to make mm -hmm. a place good for nature. And yeah. the term I, I use to myself, really, is to reculture. Yeah. To re-find that understanding that we can 
live very happily, very well, in a place that is completely good for the natural world too. And this sort of multi-species ideal is the one we should aim for. And so that's that's really that's really what I'm about at Perch Hill. Yeah, and I, that comes through very strongly in um, your book about Sissinghurst. Uh, and the sense that I get from that um, is that the human aspect is an, a totally crucial aspect of that reculturing, and that's why it's not rewilding. Um, yes, it's absolutely central. I mean, my friends always teased me about when I was do, trying to get that scheme at Sissinghurst. I should explain that... Uh, my family house is just only it's only i think 15 miles away from perch hill and it too is a house in the middle of the farm and it too had been severely degraded in the late 20th century and uh for it too i had an idea of restoration along the lines we were just talking about but unfortunately that place because um my grandparents were absolutely feckless in spending every last penny they had. And, and when my grandmother died, this gopping great tax bill was payable and my father couldn't pay it. So he had to give it to the National Trust, you know, the, the British charity that looks after land and houses and so on. I mean, largely, I should say, because in, in that house at Sittinghurst, my grandparents had made this wonderful... Art, and that was, that was the great draw there. But the, the relationship to the land was, oddly enough, very much the same. Mm. But the problem was that uh, the National Trust owned it. And so all mm. of my ideas and Sarah's ideas, it was very much a shared, shared enterprise between us, um, came up against a kind of large-scale bureaucratic... Oh, it was so um, ...reluctance. And <laughs> it... <laughs> It honestly what? reminded me of uh, Yes Minister a bit, like just the sort of dealing with <laughs> yeah. entrenched. Well, well national, yeah, it was very rude, very rude about the National Trust. I said to them, I remember standing up to some meeting and saying, because this garden is immensely famous, a well-famous garden, I said, what you've done is you, instead of a place, instead of a place with all the kind of rich implications that that term has, what you've made is a Titian with a car park attached. Ouch. And so very, 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 very long faces around the room <laughs> when I said that. Um, one of the things that I'd sort of thought when, as you were describing that work and also as, as I was reading your, your piece on Perch Hill, is that, you know, we have this instinct for the good of a complex ecosystem, you know, even saying ecosystem seems a bit clinical, but a complex landscape and, um, you know, a, a, and the horror in a way of the, the denuded and, you know, high extract, high input agriculture of the late 20th century. And there's something that's almost a blessing, I think, in the fact that we now realize that, like, that can't go on. It's not just an aesthetic preference it's actually a necessity that we figure out that we have to be clever again, basically. We can't just throw um, chemicals at the soil. We thought we could for a long time, and we thought we could just do it by force and not have to be clever and not have to be sort of detailed. Um, but, you know, the natural world is pushed back and we're forced back into a kind of um, intelligent and small scale and like lots of little projects version of agriculture purely in order to you know not have the soil completely degrade and blow away and and then we all die 
and there's something of a blessing in that. Um, is that something that that you've experienced at all? Yes, yes, I absolutely. No, no, no. I, I, I completely get that, and it's certainly, it's certainly a kind of. There is a need for humility in it, mm -hmm. uh, and a kind of summoning of humility mm -hmm. in it. You know that you you really don't know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, human being, you know, you you need to, you actually need to submit to these disciplines that the world knows mm -hmm. kind of more profoundly in every element of soil and 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 vegetable life and 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 bird life and and vertebrate life and all the rest of it and it, and it, it kind of knows that and I think that that that. Um, that kind of engagement with the knowledge of the other mm -hmm. is a blessing, I think. Mm -hmm. it, it kind of is a blessing. It's an amazing education, you could say, that it actually teaches you this sort of, uh, the, the need for um, submission. I think yes. it's actually yeah. the form of submission. I was just reading about, um, I'm writing a book about birds at the moment, and. Uh, I was reading about the relationship of um, Paleolithic, uh, deep stone, old Stone Age people in Europe uh, to, to nature about 30, 35, 30,000 years ago. And the absolutely extraordinary thing is that in Paleolithic Europe, there were probably, across the whole of Europe, it's thought, about 3,000 people. Good grief. Uh, scattered in these settlements, you know, quite large the settlements, maybe 100, 150 people in each, but a total of 3,000 people in an entirely, uh, in, a, in a continent entirely populated by other creatures mm -hmm. that, that we, we human beings, are far fewer than the bears, mm -hmm. the wolves, the birds, the everything else. Mm -hmm. And what a kind of transforming bit of mathematics that is, really, to kind of recognize that dominance is just the very last thing you could imagine having. Yeah. That, in fact, the only, the only virtue can be fittedness uh, and, and allowing the, uh, the other. I mean, of course, you can go hunting mammoths and, uh, mm -hmm. and ranching ravens, which is the thing I was reading about. But the idea that you're that that we are in any way able to be dominant is absent when you're you're one among just one among many 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 other creatures, yeah. and I think that that is that is I felt when I read that gosh that is that is a that's a form of education. Mm -hmm. If only we could reabsorb that understanding that of course we're fewer in fewer in the end than the. All invertebrate life, for example, yeah. or or the mycorrhizal universe under our feet. You know, we're far fewer. We're small, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think that that I think you could describe that recognition as a blessing. Yeah. That that uh, the end of dominance is a blessing. I I keep trying to sort of stitch together your various interests, and <laughs> in hearing you talk about that, it that's actually one of the things that I love about sailing, which is that you're sort of you can't fight the wind. 
and you can't fight the water like they will win you have to figure out what they're doing and then mm. you have to decide what you want to do and mm. then you have to figure out what to do in order to basically <laughs> cooperate with them and that's so different than going on a ferry where it's just you exactly. know, blasting you across that is right yeah. and I, the thing i the thing i always love about sailing is that every element in play is mobile Mm -hmm. So every sheet, halyard, sail, mm -hmm. spar, hull, mm -hmm. you are necessarily kind of, you know, you're not creating a great fixed monument mm -hmm. in, in that sailing world. Mm -hmm. you're, you're needing to become as fluid as the world actually is. Mm -hmm. And I think that that fluidity and liquidity, sort of fluency, you could say, or liquidity of of being that that sailing imposes on you, mm -hmm. is also a fantastic education. In yeah. you know, so if you are going to restore a farmed landscape, you can't kind of build it like a, like a concrete bunker. Because yeah. <laughs> it's not fixed. It's 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 a sort of wonderfully mobile world, and so it's like kind of stream engineering. You just have to provide channels in which yeah. life can run. I mean, which uh, is in the landscape. Uh, yeah. It almost, yeah. Make make the farm sailboat. Yeah. And it's a crazy idea, isn't it? But but I get it. <laughs> I mean, a sailboat as well. I mean, if you're thinking about the the physical form of it, like obviously there's the um, the ship of Theseus sort of, you know, logic puzzle or, or koan or whatever it is. But in reality, a, sail, a sailboat, especially a wooden boat, is just perpetually kind of breaking down and and you're constantly having to kind of like yeah. refurbish its, its physical self and also getting disgusting so you have to clean it and there is that that sense of yeah you're, you're in a relationship with this object if you just left it it would rot fast and it would get you know or rust um and you know it's slightly less true of fiberglass boats but not a whole lot less um but there is this kind of fluidity of the physical object of the boat itself as well which yes, usually manifests itself to time. it being very expensive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it is true that these things do connect. You know, the chemical agriculture, for example, mm -hmm. does not imagine the future, really. Yeah. Chemical agriculture only imagines, well, the next harvest, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, but it doesn't imagine any long-term return. Mm -hmm. And um, I, th I think that that relationship to time yeah is really central to this too that uh i, I mean the, the, it's very interesting i haven't really thought about time but i think there is something very very intimate between time and real being yeah so the, the unended nature of it is a kind of uh, an illumination i, I think uh, rather than the kind of solidity of material stuff which sort of doesn't doesn't you know, for all what you say about the sailboat, the material stuff doesn't like the idea of uh, decay. Mm -hmm. But time loves decay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and because the decay is only, you know, this is, I, I wrote a book about 
pre-Socratic philosophers, and all of them are interested in this, that the that if you take if you take the the nature of being and, and boil it down to its absolute essence, well, all of them end up with fluids of different mm -hmm. kinds. You know, Thurley says there's water and um and Aximander says it's this sort of very undefined the undefined, mm -hmm. the Apeiron. And uh, Anaximenes says that you know, it's, it's air, essentially, mm -hmm. and so that anything that is alive simply kind of breathes in a moment of the world breath, and when it dies, breathes it out again, and it returns to the kind of the cosmic air. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is something about a, a deep ecology which also loves... Uh, things losing their current form mm -hmm. you know and in, I, in a materialist materialists would love the idea of stuff being stuff yeah. this way of looking at things loves the idea of stuff stopping being stuff or <laughs> and moving least, on into other worlds so yeah. that when a tree collapses in the wood and rots you know that's that's good yeah or, and also if you're sort of putting that together with the the human desire for permanence, which we can talk about a bit later, there is this, um, I forget which co college in Oxford it was, but there's some college that when the original college hall was built, they sort of figured that the, the beams would last yes. for around 500 years. And so they had to plant, uh, you know, a, a stand of oaks that could be harvested in a couple of hundred years, you know, 500 years to replace those beams because they, and that seems to me to be the a kind of perfect human working with decay, but also kind of like you're you're not you're not being um, you know you're not trying to stop the tide. <laughs> you're actually loving the tide, but working with it. Yes, I've read, I've read about that. I've also read of that story being untrue. I know. I, <laughs> Tragically, that I story. I know. I know. That but story I love is it too untrue. Much. <laughs> It has to be true. <laughs> if only it yeah. were true. There's yeah. a thing that reminds me of that when in the <laughs> after the French Revolution, mm -hmm. some French banker or, or, or financier of some kind, uh, when he died, said, um, "I'm going to leave all my property to the French state, uh, on the condition that the French state does not touch uh, my uh, inheritance." for another 200 years. Mm -hmm. So in 1989, they would have been allowed to get them. By the time of 1989, his inheritance would, would have grown by such an enormous amount in value mm -hmm. that the French would never have to pay any taxes again and it mm -hmm. would entirely fund all French life. Uh, and it's a very lovely idea, isn't it? You know, it's, it's like planting a, planting the oak wood in, in Herefordshire. Yeah. Uh, sadly, of course, the French state started plundering it about a week and a half after he died. <laughs> <you know>? so, <laughs> so it didn't work. <laughs> but the Norwegians are doing it. And the Norwegians have this incredible fund that they've put uh, all yes, their oil, oil revenues into. Th yeah, that's oil. oil. That I doesn't think, count. I it's mean, oil, it is, but it's the same notion, the same notion of if you allow the world to grow in whatever mm -hmm. form, either as a you know, financial thing or as a, a forest, mm -hmm. then some marvellous return occurs mm -hmm. in the end. And it is, about, it is about 
understanding the value of the length of time. Just a little housekeeping. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. We'll be back with the rest of my conversation with Adam after the break. All right, well, let's try Let's try to do this. In, in your book on Homer, which was the first of your books that I read, you describe epic as that which seeks to bind the wounds that time inflicts. Is there a way that we can think about mm-hmm. epic as being a similar, like it's it's trying to help us sail through history, essentially. It's, it's trying to help us, um, you know, bridge the gap between memory and and history. Is that a reach? I mean, That's it's definitely right. a reach. I did, I... <laughs> but it sort of struck yeah. me. I mean, that... it's a kind of it's a kind of lovely middle term yeah. ep- epic like that, isn't it? That that uh, you know, we all have this memory of our lives, of our parents' lives, and maybe of our of our grandparents' lives, mm-hmm. but we certainly don't have any sort of visceral emotional understanding of our great grandparents. Well, maybe exceptionally, but no more. Nearly there, and so so we we live we live in the kind of emotional now, mm-hmm. uh, and history is a kind of very uh, cut and dried thing, isn't it? That mm-hmm. uh, removes that um, emotional connection from any account of the passing of time, and so epic epic wants to wants to know about the deep past, the mm-hmm. heroic past, even but wants to know it in terms that are like memory mm-hmm. and so that it hurts and mm-hmm. moves uh, and, 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 and even horrifies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, even historically, memory, obviously we have memory, animals have extraordinary memory and memory was invented first. Memory comes with being alive. And history is invented very, very late, you know, Thucydides, whatever, 500 BC, for, for whatever, 450 BC. And epic occupies that, that middle ground between mm-hmm. the, those things. And it, it, it wants to, re- I think, epic in my mind, actually wants to redeem time. Mm-hmm. It doesn't celebrate time. Mm-hmm. Homer is grief-stricken, really, mm-hmm. at the transience of things. And you know the the Greek idea or the Homeric idea is not true later on, but the, but the, the the Homeric idea of of the soul of the person mm-hmm. is only the soul only exists at when when the person is alive and when, and when the person dies and and goes to Hades they they have no soul in Hades or at least the soul when. When Odysseus goes down to Hades and, and, and sees all the souls there, he sees the souls in Hades blowing across that dark landscape, the fields of Asphodel, uh, like autumn leaves rustling, mm-hmm. like dry, withered autumn leaves. And there's, there's nothing, nothing to it. And so, you know, the great grief for Homer is that death happens mm-hmm. and that... Uh, the only thing that survives death is actually honor. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's what the Iliad is about. The, that the good heroic life is the only thing that outlasts the disappearance of the body. And so, and I think in many ways, 
you know, Epic is trying to redeem that hurt. Mm -hmm. It doesn't celebrate time, in uh, unlike you know those those slightly later philosophers, who who love the love the passing of time as as the essence of what is. Mm. You know, in a kind of very modern way, I think. Um, but so I and I think that. You know, some you can be very entranced. I mean, I was very entranced for a long time by this Homeric idea and the kind of grief of existence. Yeah. But I did. I wrote that book. Well, I don't know, fifteen years ago, and I don't think I think that anymore. <laughs> I don't want to celebrate the kind of poignant, plangent <laughs> grief of existence. I want to love it going on. You know? <laughs> and I don't think that the, I don't think existence is necessarily grievous. Uh -huh. yeah? The existence can be really full of amazing, fertile, productive, sort of seed-filled delight. Uh, you know, I'm looking out the window now. In, in, I'm in Spain at the moment, this wonderful jasmine just flowering in the, in the sunlight outside. And then, mm -hmm. oh God, thank, thank goodness for that. Thank goodness for that. I mean, there does seem to be a, a thing that it still remains. Uh, even after you begin to love like you realize that you can't do the Tower of Babel and you can't sort of like stop history and, mm. you know, nail yourself to mm. eternity through um, in some way that kind of doesn't, that, that solves the problem of Hades through your own efforts. Mm. There is something that remains mm. of the desire for like an ongoing personal identity that, nevertheless isn't fixed it, or doesn't stop growing or isn't you know um it's still kind of related to the becoming of of the world and it seems to me that well do you say that it's yeah. interesting to say that i do, you, I do yeah I, I i don't agree with that i mean i i think that to cling on or cling on is obviously a prejudicial term but it's a kind of to to imagine the soul as an eternal, my mm -hmm. soul as an eternal being is really delusional, mm -hmm. um, and 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 uh, and also dangerous actually, mm -hmm. because one looks if if that if that is the structure of things, then one looks for perfectibility mm -hmm. and uh, a kind of moral arrogance comes mm -hmm. in the wake of that and and that it that it is exactly like making the beautiful building mm -hmm. uh, which which is not how things are and has led our culture down terrible paths too um, I mean I see I see your point and I think what you're describing is the sort of Tower of Babel version where you it's like the sort of technological fix or the like the transhumanist urge yeah. like to upload your brain or something but I don't think that's the only I mean we're just going to yeah. disagree about this but <laughs> but I don't think that's the only way of yes. of of um th that kind of grasping technologizing willful um refusal to let go i don't think is the only way but <laughs> but we might just no, disagree but it about is this. the it it, it uh, okay we can disagree i'm just let's just stay with it for a minute though so 
I mean, the, the problem for me is the kind of is the is the is thinking of the soul as as, as an everlasting thing. Mm -hmm. That that if it's everlasting, then you you can't attend really to the to the to the transient to the mm -hmm. beauty of transience. You really only attend to the to the final everlasting mm -hmm. nature of it. Mm -hmm. And and if you attend to the final everlasting nature of it. Then you are led down non. Uh, I would even say non-ecological paths. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is, do you because it, because yeah. it is a, there's a rigidity. There's a rigidity. There's a non-sailing aspect to that, isn't it? <laughs> this is. I mean, this is completely fascinating because this is what your book on the pre-Socratics is about. If you compare them to Plato, for example. Can you describe that book and how you came to write it, and um, just give give our listeners a sense of what you were doing there? Yeah, I was I was very. Um, uh, there's a great question about when when Homer was, and mm -hmm. the book I wrote about Homer claimed that the essence of Homer is very very deep in Bronze Age history, sort of two thousand or something. BC and really marked the arrival of the Greeks in the Aegean and the, and the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. It was all about uh, what happens when a, a steppe-based, essentially Asian or kind of North Asian culture comes to to to, uh, uh, to the to the Aegean and and meets the great urban uh, cultures of mm -hmm. Egypt and Mesopotamia and so on, and. But that is extremely controversial and very much got up the nose of all the old professors. They didn't, they didn't like that idea because the conventional idea about Homer is that Homer is much, much later, uh, at the beginning of the Iron Age, in about 700, maybe seven, even 650 mm -hmm. uh, BC, you know, 15, 13, 14, 1500 years later than that. And so I was always very intrigued by actually the world that it is conventionally said Homer, Homer comes from, mm -hmm. and it's a it's a miraculous it's a miraculous moment in in our history that uh, all the Bronze Age uh, cultures had collapsed in about you know dominoes in in the Arctic eleven hundred BC and the whole of the Mediterranean entered a kind of dark age in which. Everything came to an end, or nearly everything came to an end. All sort of urban civilization and literacy and uh, trade and um, metalworking and all the rest of it. And then, quite suddenly, in about kind of 700, 650 BC, something happened in uh, the Eastern Aegean. Cities sprang up. They sort of had temples, coinage. They invented the Olympic Games. They um, start, you know, maybe started to write down Homer. They they acquired writing from from the Near East, and, and a whole range of different things happened. So, uh, modern or kind of the beginnings of Greek uh, sculpture, and uh, in that. Uh, thing, that moment called the Greek Renaissance, um, philosophy began, or mm -hmm. what is called philosophy began. And these very, very early thinkers all sprang up in a series of Greek cities on what is now the 
western shore of Turkey on the Aegean, eastern Aegean. And these Greek thinkers who were very um, connected to Egyptian, Babylonian, Mesopotamian ways of thought, and maybe also to uh, Indian and even Chinese ways of thought coming across Asia towards them, started to think about um, the world and the soul and the city, us social beings, uh, in a new way. And the new way was really a giant uh, rejection of monarchy, of monarchy mm -hmm. on earth, of sort of a grand instituted bureaucratic state of the kind you would have had in Egypt or Mesopotamia previously, uh, in which all thinkers and intellectuals were effectively servants of temple or, or palace, rejecting that idea both socially and intellectually. And instead, in these small cities, small trading cities run by merchant oligarchies, thinking about the need to think about what it was to be alive, not to be subjected to an all-powerful deity or an all-powerful worldly monarch, but to, to think, you know, what is the world actually made of? Or mm. what, what is it to be me? Or what makes the good city? What, what is law? What is justice? And so all the grand questions of what we now consider to be philosophy emerge in kind of very strange and rather unapproachable ways, in often in gnomic um, uh, sort of uh, paradoxical and often opaque statements, uh, but which nevertheless are hugely appealing to mm -hmm. me as a kind of crossover between philosophy and poetry and religion. You know, mm. I think that the, the philosophers of these cities are in many ways like prophets. There are, the, many of them were poets. Many of the philosophy, much of the philosophy is expressed in poetry. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was and am very drawn to them for their pre-Platonic conceptions. You know, they do not, until later on with Pythagoras, think of an eternal soul. Mm -hmm. uh, they do not think that the kind of duty of man is to be kind of good uh, and how to cultivate goodness. Uh, they do not think that, um, you know, in the platonic way of a kind of very uh, ferociously and strictly regulated hierarchical social system but are very, very interested in the idea of kind of the essential tension of life being about how to be with an identity in an entirely conceptually fluid world. I think mm. that, that really is the core of what that book is about. Sort of if if you know, I said I said to some friend of mine the other day, it's just the idea of completely dissolving mm -hmm. oneself in the fluid world is so beautiful. Mm 
-hmm. And he said, no, not at all, because there's nothing more beautiful than identity. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a kind of, that is an incredibly difficult, unresolvable question that you have to attend to everything we've been talking about here uh, today. Mm -hmm. But you also have to attend to the opposite. You have to attend to reality of self and all that. So I think that's that's what drew me to it. It's also an incredibly beautiful part of the world where I've been sailing with Mm -hmm. with Sarah. And that's a magical thing that you sail. A day's sail between these cities is is a day's sail between different ideas of being. You know, that's if you had to kind of make a dream recipe for me, that is it. Yeah. Get in the boat and you sail from Miletus to Ephesus and, and you sail between, you know, one set of philosophers and another. Uh, yeah, it was, I cannot <laughs> tell you. It was a magical thing to do. I loved doing it. <laughs> I cannot tell you what, catnip, what? That, catnip that book was for me. It was just sailing plus sort of competing philosophical systems. Is just... <laughs> um, I mean... <laughs> I, think I think we probably live in quite a small niche there. And I don't think there are probably not many sailors who like philosophy and there aren't many philosophers who like sailing. I, well, the thing is, like, when I... I think it's quite a, quite a specialist yeah. little nook. <laughs> well, the thing is, I, I really... They were kind of separate in my life for a long time. Like, when I got hardcore into sailing, I basically for about two years, forgot that I cared about anything else. <laughs> and then um, I kind right. of, I sort of gradually emerged from that. And in a way, I was sort of like remembering, oh, I, I care about G.K. Chesterton too. I don't only care about tall ship sailing. And so there was a kind of, there had to be kind of like mending of identity there. I also was sort of realizing I couldn't actually make a living as a deckhand. Yeah. Sailors probably, often probably... end up, sailors do often end up incredibly depressed though don't yeah. they? do you find that well people I mean, who've given their life to sailing yeah there was deeply unsatisfying somehow yeah, because there is it is the perpetually i don't know why that should be it's it's the giving your life to transients and it's the sort of the very the great appeal of being able to sort of pick up sticks and go somewhere else but it also means that you're not you're not putting down roots and you know the the guy who mostly taught me to sail, um, who was the the first mate on the ship that I sailed on, which is called the Clipper City in, in New York Harbor, he was you know from Vancouver, Canada, and was just this kind of like Jimmy Buffett, but like not as you know not successful <laughs> guy, and he was absolutely right. a romantic figure, but like kind of miserable, and ended up you know periodically yeah. unemployed and living on a boat you know and and that is kind of the and sad and drunk sad yeah, and drunk and yeah. boring someone in some dark cafe but he was yeah. so but he was so good he was so good at teaching and he was so good at sailing and and there is so you you do kind of it's like such an interesting thing that yeah i mean it's not that different you i know, think because everything you were saying earlier everything you were saying earlier about it's so funny that you know the phrase you put down roots. Well, put down roots is not pouring a concrete foundation, is it? No. And you know, and so that actually it there is some transfer between those kind of sailing desires, mm-hmm. you know, that that Odyssean longing for movement. Mm-hmm. 
But Odysseus, you know, Odysseus longs to be home, doesn't he? Yeah, you yeah. Know, the, whole, the whole motor of the Odyssey is to be home. I really... And, and, and the proof, the, just to say the proof when he gets home. You remember this? It's, yeah. It's, oh, it's the bed, yeah. It's extraordinary part. The bed. The bed, Remember yeah. the, the bed? Yeah. Okay, Penelope, his queen, as you know, says to him, I think we should just move the bed out into the hall. Mm -hmm. It would be so much him. more convenient. Right. And she knows, and he knows, and we know that the corner of the bed that Odysseus himself made 20 years before is a living olive tree. Mm -hmm. And the bed is immovable. The bed is immovable because it's alive. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it, this, isn't that incredible about this kind of fusing of categories that goes on in that story yeah. of fixity and transience and livingness and home yeah. and and you know the traveler returned returns to a place that is fixed because something is growing in it mm -hmm. you know that is it's astonishing i think that yeah uh, the, the wisdom embedded in that story i'm i feel i don't know but i feel that story must be hugely old don't you think far yeah. older than homer I mean, it feels like right at the beginning of human understanding. It does. I'm. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Adam. This was just absolutely wonderful. Thank you for asking me. I loved it. Okay. Yeah. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine, or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits, from free books to regular calls with the editors to invitations to special events and the occasional gift. Go to plow.com to learn more. On our next episode, I'll be talking with Rosemary Garland Thompson and Alexander Rakin about euthanasia and the modern eugenics movement. <laughs>